Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Hi, everybody. It's Bob Vetter here. Before we get started, and just in case you have to get off this podcast early, if you'd like to get underway with your own healing and clear away any energetic blockages, you can get on a free call with me. Go to HealWithBob.com. Welcome, everybody, in my podcast listening audience. Today, I have John Prendergast with me. John J. Prendergast, Ph.D., is the author of The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence from 2019, and In Touch, How to Tune In to the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself from 2015, as well as the senior editor of The Sacred Mirror and Listening from the Heart of Silence. He is a spiritual writer, a spiritual teacher, rather, psychotherapist and retired adjunct professor of psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he taught and supervised master's level psychotherapists for 23 years. He offers online and residential retreats in the US and Europe, www.listeningfromsilence.com. Welcome to our podcast, John. Very, very nice to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for having me. It's great to have you here. And I'd like to start, there are so many directions we could go with this, uh, but I'd like to begin with your backstory. Uh, Can you tell us about what put you on this road, this healing road, and some of the experiences that went along with it? Mm, Yeah. Well, um, I would say when I look back and kind of trace a certain thread of what's happened, it takes me to probably the ages of late boyhood, around ages 10, 11, and 12. And I had these very curious experiences, which is many nights when I would start falling asleep, I would drift into a hypnagogic state, kind of, you know, waking dream state. And I would feel my body expanding tremendously. And it almost felt like infinitely. And it would get infinitely large, it felt, and then infinitely small. It was, it was a most peculiar experience. I hadn't read or heard anything about it, and I didn't talk to it about anyone. But it was a very common experience until the onset of puberty. <laughs> then it was totally over Everything falls apart. <laughs> Everything falls apart. And then all I was interested in was cars and girls and TV shows and <laughs> sports, you know. But um, when I was 17, uh, I happened to listen to a, a recording of Ravi Shankar playing the sitar. And it struck me so deeply, I became very interested in Indian culture. And when I went off to the University of California as a freshman, um, a friend of mine began exposing me to um, Indian spiritual literature and saints and sages. And um, I began a meditation practice when I was 20 and uh, transcendental meditation, which is a mantra practice and became a TM teacher uh, briefly in my mid twenties. And There was really just a, you know, at the time it felt very personal. Like I was, I was trying, actually I was trying to 
be a more peaceful person uh, because I, I felt somewhat anxious as a, as a teenager and young adult. But there was something else about higher states or expanded states of consciousness that interested me. And, and so there was kind of a mixture of motives. I was, you know, I wanted to feel better, more calm, more peaceful within me. And I was also interested in these kind of expansive states, which I began to experience in meditation um, as well. And kind of looking back at it now, it just feels like there was an inner call um, that I was uh, in my own way kind of responding to in a, you know, in a haphazard way, I would say. But there was something very deep and very quiet in the core of my being that um, I was compelling for me. And, and it was actually more interesting than anything else that became kind of the, the thread that I've been following my whole life. So um, I went to law school for a year. Uh, that was not my cup of tea. And uh, then I tried an unconventional graduate school in East-West psychology um, because of my interest in meditation and, and kind of altered states and consciousness. And um, I trained to be a psychotherapist. And I was doing my personal work, um, kind of working with my own psychology. I mean, you know, put me on a, a Zafu, a meditation cushion, I'd be very peaceful, very happy. I'd just be very quiet and, and find myself dropping into a very peaceful, deep place. But put me in a social situation and I would be anxious. You know, relationships were more challenging for me. And I was curious about that, what that was based on. So um, training as a therapist was both for, you know, um, to work with my own conditioning, my own wounds, if you will. Um, but also it was a spiritually oriented psychotherapy. And, um, and I'll talk a little bit about this maybe in another segment, but I began to uh, feel like it was important to have a teacher, even though I was resistant to that happening. And um, so in my thirties, I, I did meet uh, my foundational teacher and began an intense process of self-inquiry that was on a parallel track I would say to the psychotherapeutic work and eventually got my master's and PhD and, and worked as a psychotherapist. But I was also going to a lot of retreats, um, <clears throat> week long retreats, meditation and, and inquiry retreats, um, which really opened up and supported the spiritual dimension of my life. And um, so that's kind of the story. I mean, there's a lot more to say about it, but that's, that's sort of the core summary of the early years at least. So maybe what, I, what I'd like to go back to is um, the, this theme that I see so often, and that is to people with, um, who are very spiritual, having difficulties in, in social relationships. Yes. And in fact, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the people who come to me for healing fall into that category, mm -hmm. highly spiritual and, I, and certainly my own background as well. And yeah. I, I think that there is a, a certain, um, maybe an unconscious attempt to escape this world through mm -hmm. spirituality because there's, there's the world of peace yes. as opposed to this world, yes. this world of chaos. Right. And it's what I refer to as a, a vertical form of spirituality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would agree in large part you do see, you know, what's called spiritual bypassing, right. you know, which is the avoidance of psychological material yeah. and an attempt to reach some transcendent 
you know, state where you're always peaceful and, you know, connect with the, the whole of life. And, and very often people on a spiritual path um, have mixed motives, you know, as I did um, to try to transcend or get away or escape. At the same time, there's, there's also a love for the truth, uh, a, a deep desire to attune with um, a deeper principle and a deeper knowing within themselves. So I think I see a lot of mixed motives and I work, you know, I work as a psychotherapist. So I work with my clients who are interested in working both levels, both in that kind of discovery of true nature, but also facing their conditioning. And I think, um, you know, in the, in the last few decades, that's become more and more common. People realize you need to put attention on both areas. So let's go back to your own life first before we, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about your work and a whole bunch of other topics. But let's go back to that self-exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you share with, uh, with us how you made the transition, let's say, from this, this very self-oriented spirituality to a larger expansiveness and to, to get beyond the, the limitations of this desire to escape? Mm. Well, you know, they, there was just a weaving of both levels. Um, I think as I began to study psychology and train as a therapist, I just, you know, I went into therapy myself and I just began to look at um, my own stories that were obstructive um, and created anxiety and a sense of kind of insecurity um, based on my own, you know, upbringing, you know, my own conditioning. And as I began to kind of be in touch with it and share it and examine it and feel, be willing to really be in the body and feel my experience, they began to diminish, you know, the anxiety lessened my sense of self-trust and confidence, my sense of self-worth, kind of this sort of foundational psychological work was being addressed. And I just felt, you know, more peaceful and at ease on a psychological level with mm -hmm. myself. Meanwhile, you know, the spiritual exploration continued, uh, the meditation and self-inquiry. So I was kind of working both tracks simultaneously, attending to both of them. And I think um, each supports the other in a very interesting way. It's like the less personal conditioning we have in the way, kind of the more open we are to our deepest nature. The more in touch we are with our deepest nature, there's space and compassion to deal with our human conditioning. So I see them kind of weaving and supporting each other in a complementary way. So in our, our podcast series, we, we look at this intersection of culture, spirituality, psychological growth. Can you kind of address the, 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 the cultural side of this? You're interested, you're interested in, in Eastern ways of looking at the world and how that came to influence the wider work that you did. Yeah, it was very important because I was raised um, as an Episcopalian, you know, in the church. I was a acolyte or altar boy. And, but I found um, kind of the Christian tradition, at least through that particular lens, to not be very compelling or interesting to me. And I didn't really, it wasn't until I began to read about contemplative practice really meditation, something more deeply experiential, not just intellectual or belief-based, but something where you would shift attention really from the mind to a deeper, um, more essential level. That really seemed interesting to me. And also I was reading accounts of these kind of sages and saints, 
in um, India, Yogananda, Ramakrishna, for instance. And there was something just very familiar to me about that. And, and I actually went to India when I was in my late 20s. I was 28. And I loved it. You know, there was just something about being in that particular culture. I've, you know, I've been in others as well. Um, just the smells, the way people move, the colors, the food, um, the language, the way of being that was just very, despite the poverty and difficulty of that lifestyle, was very familiar to me and I loved it. So uh, it kind of, you know, in, in the Indian, East Indian tradition, th these spiritual practices and principles are, you know, have been around for millennia and they're very sophisticated. Um, so it was like discovering a treasure trove, really, of uh, contemplative practice. And so it had a big impact on me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm deeply grateful for that. Um, I went to India three times um, to study, you know, at various ashrams and gained a lot. But I also realized what I was looking for was who I am. And that's available wherever I am. So I kind of had to go to India to discover I didn't have to go to India. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about the what about the the clash of, or maybe it's not a clash, but the the interface, let's say, of the very Western practice of psychotherapy compared to the the Eastern traditions? Um, how did those two interact in, in, inside of you? Well, I trained in a transpersonal psychology. So, um, you know, which had really begun to develop in the late 60s. I, I began training in the early 80s. Um, so that's the, you know, very kind of the Eastern contemplative effect on psychotherapy was the, the, the kind I studied. The kind that, say, um, behavioral psychology or traditional Freudian psychology um, did not appeal to me at all. And so I just didn't deal, you know, to me it seemed... Um, too reductionistic and too materialistic. And so I didn't give it a lot of attention. There is one exception in the West, which is Jung. And uh, Jung ha had a deep kind of experiential and intuitive sensitivity, you know, to the depths of the human psyche. And um, he was very open-minded and, you know, he worked a lot with archetypes and was interested in indigenous culture and shamanic practice. And so uh, I found Jung very inspiring. Um, in, in my studies, but otherwise I didn't really go into the, the more traditional forms too much. So I didn't, I didn't experience that conflict. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And your, your trips to India, like what, how would you describe the impact of that part of the experience on your own eventual awakening? I would say, um, that's a great question. Um, I went at the time I was mainly studying with a, a now controversial teacher named Sai Baba, Satya Sai Baba. He's now deceased. And, um, you know, since I, I, I studied with him for a few years and left and since a number of kind of scandals have come out about him that I was unaware of at the time, but um, kind of immersed in that traditional Hindu and Vedanta um, culture I think um, had a profound effect. It really, um, I, I would say, I would say it really began to open my heart. Um, you know, I'd already done a meditation practice for a while and there was something about the devotional practice that was very heart opening. It, it opened that dimension 
of my experience. Um, and then I was, of course, there, there are several, I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with them, but there are several Indian sages. Uh, one is Ramana Maharshi, mm -hmm. um, famous for his self-inquiry, the question sitting with who am I? And another, maybe less known, is Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was in Mumbai. And also in that tradition, he was uh, younger than Ramana Maharshi and died, I think, in 1981 in the fall. And um, also in that kind of process of sitting and, and really deeply inquiring into the nature of the self. And so those teachers and those teachings um, had, a, had a profound effect on me and, and led to my you know, meeting of a, a Western teacher who had studied in India as well. I'll talk about that later. You know, it, it, it's interesting to me that, that we, and I'm going to put myself in the same category because I, I was profoundly affected by some of these, these figures as well, um, that as a Westerner to be drawn into that devotional aspect. I mean, I, uh, you know, had a similar upbringing. Uh, I was raised Presbyterian and it, it just, it, from the time that I was a child, it just seemed hollow to me personally. Uh -huh. And then the first time that I started to even hear about some of these people, it was the devotional aspect of it that was so fascinating to me. And I, you know, it's interesting to hear you speak because um, you know, at a, at a similar point in time, it's like I was experiencing similar things and went oh. to India also. Oh, interesting. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, it's, it's making me reflect on this aspect of a, a Westerner from maybe, I guess you could say a, a more st spiritually st um, sterile environment to find something so inspiring in India. And mm -hmm. how would you, how would you articulate that? I mean, how would you explain that to somebody who doesn't know about this culture and hasn't been to India? Mm. That's a great question, Bob. You know, because it was such an intuitive pull. I mean, it was coming, I was like, you know, I had a dream, you know, that kind of a very powerful dream. I was on a long meditation course and I had a dream of this, you know, teacher in India. And it was so powerful. It's just like, I had to go and meet him, you know, that it's so really it came from the inside. Um, and, you know, I think we are of that generation when, you know, in the seventies, many, um, spiritual seekers did go east, you know, either to Buddhist or Hindu uh, sources, you know, to meet. And it was a call of the heart. That's all I could say. And, and, um, and I'm so glad I went. And, and it also feels complete. You know, it's just like, that was a phase. And who knows? I mean, if karma and past lives are real, then maybe there was a karmic pull there too to uh, complete something. I don't know, but I was so struck, as I mentioned earlier, just when I landed in Bombay the first time, how utterly familiar and at home I felt. And that's not the case with most Westerners who first arrive in India. They're like in shock. Yeah. You know? But I, I just was like, oh, I know this place. Yeah. Well, I, I remember I landed in Delhi and I, I, I didn't do it, but I felt like I, I had this pull to drop to my knees and kiss the ground. Well, there you go. Something very similar. Yeah, and, and this, you know, this devotional inspiration, it was so surprising to me because it wasn't in my background and I wasn't a particularly emotional person, the second more cognitive, you know, kind of one of the, usually one of the brighter kids and, 
you know, identified with my intellect and academic performance. And this whole other dimension of the heart began to kind of awaken, much to my surprise. Um, so I think we all have this capacity, but some of us have this temperament more than others. And I seem to have a mixed temperament. I, I love, you know, clear thinking and lucid discernment. And, and there's a deep um, loving devotional quality that I have that's no longer pointed to anyone in particular. It's actually, I would say, the love for life, the love for the truth, the love for what's essential. Um, well, and I, I think that that's, that's the greatest, I don't know if the word is gift or, or developed trait, but to be able to feel with the heart and be able to articulate and explain through the mind. Yes, to have both. The other way around. Yeah, it's, and they're really, really, they're really not separate. You know, and, and very often, you'll see this more in Buddhist traditions, but very often um, these two qualities of wisdom and love, clarity and kindness are linked as essential qualities. And, and you'll see this in, I think, any genuine spiritual tradition. Um, these I are, agree more. <laughs> and, and when you recognize that, you'll see it. You'll see it in shamans. You'll see it in atheists. You'll see it in philosophers. You'll see it in teachers not just, you know, as a philosophy, but as a lived, you know, they live it in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it's all, ab all about, is like living this understanding for it to transpose into our ordinary life. I, I do too. And I think personally, you know, I felt the rejection of Western society at the time because so much of it, at least through my lens, was this hypocrisy of, of that, um, I don't know, very... Uh, very hollow, hollow sense of, of spirituality. That's, that's what I felt. That was what, what drew me was this deep, deep heartfelt sincerity. Yeah, there it is. You know, we were both responding to the same, same pole. And it seemed, you know, and then of course you get the reality, which is, you know, there was a lot of idealization, you know, right. mixed in with intuition and reality. And then you realize, oh, some of these people, some of these teachers are not living this or they're... Well, that's true. That's, that's the romanti romanticization of uh -huh. it, right? To yeah, the idealization. anybody who is a guru that automatically they're connected with the divine more than I am. Right, right. They, they must be on this pedestal. Well, that's right. So that's the whole mechanism of projection and idealization, which is so important to see and see through and let go. And as you say, not all of them have lived up to that. Most of them haven't, right. but, but some of them have, you know, and, and it's not about, you know, whether they have or they haven't, it's about us, you know, it's like what, what we do with this understanding and, and our own honesty and our own vulnerability to keep looking, you know, at areas that are incongruent or, um, you know, shallow, uh, hypocritical or whatever and face them honestly. So one more thing that I want to explore before we finish up this first section is within a lot of the traditions in India, there is this idea that I, as a spiritual seeker, need to find a guru and to use the guru as the direct link to the divine. Uh -huh. And what that does is it, it blocks my critical faculties. The minute, so the minute that I do that, I subsume my will, part of my own will, and my own access to say, this person is the person to bring that, that light, that energy 
into me. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why a lot of people, you know, stay away from it in the first place. But yes, there's a giving up of one's own knowing, one's own authority. Um, and you get stuck in a position. Uh, you don't really grow very much. And, and so for me, it's really the, the theme of autonomy, autonomy of inner sovereignty is so important. Mm-hmm. And a genuine teacher will always support that from the very beginning uh, and will not ask you to subsume your uh, authority to them, um, but to, um, you know, stay awake, be discerning, um, mm-hmm. and um, remain, you know, clear-eyed uh, in this approach. So that is a, a real, I think, um, tendency in kind of guru, guru-centric teachings and um, can create a lot of problems. On the other hand, I think there's a legitimate role for a teacher as a guide. It's provisional, you know, it's a role that's played and then released once uh, a student kind of catches the perfume of their own inner knowing and their own authority, then job well done, you know? Mm -hmm. And and what's the problem is, of course, and you see in Western students of these Rishis and Roshis and Rinpoches, as I like to say, I like the alliteration. Is they, they begin to take it on themselves, you know, this, and, and then you get identified with it and you get these inflated egos and grandiosity and abuse. So these are, you know, it's a big pitfall. Um, nonetheless, I, you know, there's a legitimate role for uh, authentic teachers. Absolutely. And John, I think that's a great place for us to end uh, for our first session together. So John Prendergast, thank you so much for being with us in section one of our interviews together. Thank you, John, and thank you everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're a very spiritual person who just needs a little help clearing away what's been holding you back through some relatively quick healing techniques, get on my calendar for a free call. Go to healwithbob.com. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.